Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. We Have Ways of Making You Talk presents One Man's Window, an illustrated account of 10 weeks of war, Malta, April 13th to June 21st, 1942, by Dennis Barnum. Chapter 3. Final Briefing. I'm in my cabin, and our aircraft carrier is pitching forwards and backwards and rolling from side to side. This comfortable little cell of mine leans over, and when it ought to stop, it goes on further. I'm at my writing desk, feeling vaguely seasick. Perhaps it's the chocolate I've eaten, three bars of it, and I'm just not used to the stuff. Real milk chocolate, too, in real silver paper, quite different from the ersatz chocolate and transparent wrappings that we've been getting on the ration at home. I can't bear to look at the creamy brown lump with its crinkled paper twinkling and sparkling in the cabin lights. I push it away into the shadow of the books piled up in front of me. Not far enough. I push it out of sight behind the books. Before me, I have H.G. Wells' Outline of History, A History of Art, an Atlas, and the third volume of the history notes I am making. To bring these books, as well as my sketchbooks and painting equipment, in addition to my clothes and personal kit, is to break the orders we've been given about the limited weight of luggage. I hope that the heavily laden Spitfire, with all its extra fuel and guns, will lift off the flight deck when we set out for Malta in two days' time. But I refuse to leave these things behind. Surely there'll be some opportunity to draw and study despite the battle we're going into. But I'm restless. I can't seem to settle to my work now. Perhaps it's being in an aircraft carrier. How I'd hate to be permanently stationed in this electrically lit prison below decks. I've tried to work. Perhaps I'm thinking over much of the battle that draws minute by minute closer. I've even been along to my American friend's cabin where they played some records to me. Mozart and Beethoven were torture to listen to. At times in the past, I've been lifted to ecstasy by such music. But this morning, since it would not have been polite to leave as soon as I arrived, I sat there in their cabin, chained to agony like Prometheus. What else can I do? Where else can I go? I've been in the hangar deck and in the wardroom. I was in the wardroom last night. I smelt the expensive aroma of cigar smoke in the corridors long before I arrived there. When I finally went in through the swing doors and stood inside the wide, low room with its white-painted girders stretching across the ceiling, I found it packed tight with people. Although there was a barricade of people linked together in conversation across the bar, the Negro barman in his white coat leaned over their heads and handed me an iced Coca-Cola. Holding the tall glass, deliciously cool and moist in my hot hand, I looked around and spotted the dreaded hue, with Ken and two Americans, seated at my favourite table. I couldn't get to them because of the crush, but across the din I watched the dumb play of their moving lips. They made urgent gestures with their hands, banging them on the table with delight. They were obviously telling stories. Ken's dark eyebrows oscillated up and down as he spoke. His mouth smiled wider and wider. His cheeks were two round lumps and he was shaking with laughter. His eyebrows shot up in the middle with the painful effort to get the rest of his story born. I suppose it all came out, for there was a sudden burst of movement. Hugh doubled up across his great arms, while the American, with his back towards me, arched backwards like a released spring. At last I got near enough to realise they were relating the adventures of their last few hours before sailing. I still couldn't see the chair-tipping American's face, but he gestured with the back of his thumb towards his gaunt-faced companion. "'Gus here!' he exclaimed. He was staggering round and round the lamppost outside her apartment. 
That lamppost, he was clasping at it and asking over and over again if its name was Mary. I thought of my own last evening in England, walking alone with Diana along the darkened shores of Derwentwater, looking out together across the quiet, smooth surface of the lake. I am holding Diana's photograph in front of me, but it's no good writing another letter. I'm totally unable to express my feelings any more clearly. This just has to be borne, but my heart goes out to all other young men and women who have been wrenched apart by this war. It's no good sitting down here, imprisoned in this cabin, feeling sorry for myself. There's one place I haven't visited. A vigorous blow of fresh air would do me good. I'll go up onto the flight deck. The carrier is steaming at full speed, now up into the air, now down into the sea. But this is no deck with a railing to hold on to as the ship rolls, or to lean against as you come down from the sky to meet the sea. For here is the largest sheet of metal you have ever walked upon, wet and slippery, with nothing to stop you being shot over the side. I've walked out from the metal island all too confidently. I'm much too close to the prow. It's a balancing feat to stay here and not to slide away. I'd like to get back, but I can't move without sliding. Through eyes screwed up against the wind, I peer at the end of the square deck, curving downwards just a few feet away. The actual brink is out of sight now. The deck's dropping. Where there was sky a moment ago, now there are waves. I'm still dropping, and I look up at the dark sea, stretching away into the distance. A wall of green water is rising above me. The deck's at a crazy angle. My feet are slipping. Oh, God, I'm sliding towards the brink. The deck's coming up again. Reprieve. Got to get back to the island. She's rolling a bit now, slopes increasing, being pitched outwards. No rails of menacing sea on my left. Can just balance. Managed to turn round. I'm climbing back to security. No hand or footholds. Lines of rivets giving more grip to my shoes than the wet metal plates. Now, with the rising prow lifting me high into the air, I'm looking down the whole length of the great runway towards the stern. I feel much safer. There's such a long way to slide and plenty to grab onto at the end. There's a line of fat little American fighter planes down there, a dozen or more. I can see the taut ropes that lash them into position. Above them, a churning wake flattens the wave tops away to the distant horizon. Moving forward down the runway with the force of the wind in my back, I'm like a swimmer swept by the tide, but I'm crabbing steadily towards the island and safety. The black oval doorway that leads below looks very small at the base of the towering mountain of metal. The mountain itself slopes back in a series of horizontal platforms. On these platforms there are guns, and there are men there. Men? I'd quite forgotten about men. Wearing cold scuttle helmets, they are slung behind their weapons, whose black muzzles are pointing skywards, looking up the barrels of their guns, watching the sky, watchful against attack, unaware of my predicament down here. You might please glance this way in case I need help. But their heads do not move. The blurred grey clouds seem to spin around above them. Taking my oval doorway with it, the island lifts high into the sky. I'm climbing the fierce slope, carefully picking my way along each line of rivets. The gradient slackens. I'm walking normally. Now, pitched straight into the open door, I grasp the metal and hold on tight. I'm astonished that anyone can come up from below and walk out on that perilous slide. If they went overboard, the ship would not stop. This is war. The Americans are watching for submarines and enemy aircraft, not for fools like me. As I climb the ladder back to the interior labyrinth, I notice that my forearms and hands are trembling little. I am reminded that this is not a Navy week for children. It's Sunday morning in the Mediterranean. I'm standing on a narrow catwalk a few feet above the level of the flight deck. The fierce sun glares down out of the cloudless sky and a gentle breeze blows the smell of hot paintwork into my face. Today the flight deck is horizontal and flat. It has the solid security of a billiard table. Its dry metal plates are a pale yellow-grey in the sunlight while a dark violet shadow lies motionless upon it. 
The shadow is cast by the metal superstructure, whose gun platforms, funnel masts and radar aerials are a dark silhouette steady against the sky. Our carrier is moving forward across a brilliant blue sea, and gay little waves come dancing diagonally from the hazy distance to greet us. The weight of our ship is quite indifferent to their welcome. The catwalk below my feet is of latticed steel, and far below I can see the waves being turned aside. Their happy porpoise-like flourishes are left behind as the water streams past. Our shadow on the water races along with us, and our bow wave breaks out of it into dazzling whiteness. We came through the Straits of Gibraltar during darkness last night. We have left behind the cloud screen which saved us from the searching eyes of enemy reconnaissance aircraft in the Atlantic, and our fleet of ships is now fully exposed as it rides deeper into enemy waters. In her usual station on the starboard bow, our battleship Renown is dipping and rising very gently, a faint wisp rising straight up from her funnel. Ahead of her is a cruiser and flung out fanwise in front of the fleet are three destroyers. Everyone is alert, and if all goes according to plan, we'll fly off our Spitfires at dawn tomorrow. I suppose it's only natural to have a tingle of apprehension. A few minutes ago, Squadron Leader Hughes, the RAF engineering officer on board, who's been giving the Spitfires a final check, was up here taking the morning air, and he assured me that we should have no mechanical trouble. I hope he is right. We've got to fly nearly 700 miles, as far as from London to Venice, and we're over the sea all the way. If any fault develops in the single engine, we'll have to come down without any hope of rescue. Hugh should know indeed. He is a man with a reputation for, on a previous reinforcement trip, he discovered a manufacturing fault in all the long-range tanks. He would not let a single aircraft take off. Although the Admiral and the Captains were furious for having to come so far in vain, Hughes would not yield. He thus became known as the junior officer who turned back the fleet. I have just completed a pen drawing of him, and I observed him closely. He certainly appears confident this time. I've done two portraits this morning, and the comparison between them was most interesting. Hughes was gay, even mischievous, but although he bears a considerable responsibility, he can afford to be gay, for when we have taken off tomorrow, the carrier will turn round and bear him home again to England. It is a strange coincidence that he's on board, for I first met him a year ago in Lincolnshire at the identical time and place where I met my wife. He thus represents my own happiness during the past year. He has become a symbol of the past, the last connecting link with home. The other drawing was of squadron leader Gracie. He is symbolical to the future. Gracie is the only man among us who has been to Malta, and he looks like it. Our voyage and the 50 Spitfires in the hangar are in many ways the result of his energies, for he was sent to London by the commanding officer, the RAF in Malta, to report on the desperate condition of the island, to stir up trouble and to bring back reinforcements at any cost. When I was drawing him, I learned a few more facts about Malta. I knew that the bomber force lay wrecked on the aerodromes, but I did not know that in March alone over 2,000 tonnes of bombs have been hurled down upon the island. This is ten times the tonnage that fell on Coventry during the Blitz. Not only this, but when Gracie left about two weeks ago, the rate of bombing had been trebled. Malta is now being bombed at the rate of 6,000 tonnes a month. It is coventrated every day, day after day. When he left there, there were only six serviceable fighters left, not 12 as I've been told earlier. Now the situation is probably worse. If you're lucky enough to fly, Gracie told me, then you're generally outnumbered 40 or 50 to 1. The same facts as I knew already, but lucky enough, indeed. I stared at the man who had actually done this thing, a sad, hunched figure with the ribbon of the distinguished flying cross. His face did not bear his usual vigorous and forceful look. His expression betrayed his thoughts as he looked towards the horizon. I followed his gaze. 
With the carrier so steady and peaceful and the blue sea so wonderful to look upon, it seemed impossible to realise that beyond the horizon was dust and blood and destruction. I wondered what the battle would be like, and I am still wondering. The odds are fantastic. All that I feel is the impossibility of survival for long. None of the other pilots has a face like Gracie. They are much younger, watching them drinking coffee, reading books, playing dice or cards. They don't seem to think about what lies ahead. Even when their faces are relaxed, they show no strain or apprehension. Frankly, I wonder if they have any imagination whatsoever. Perhaps they are better off without it. I only hope that I give the same impression of innocent calmness. Spiritually, I feel dreadfully alone. Last night I went to see the Padre. The visit was a great disappointment. I was told all the usual stuff designed to make a fighting man fight. I was told that I should fight the enemy because of his barbarity. I was told that this war was a war to end wars, that the future would be rosy and glorious, that a single state might soon develop in which men would be bound together in friendship by modern communications. I was not satisfied and asked more questions. God was described to me as an invention of a highly evolved man, as a crystallisation of his more civilised feelings and values, but of God himself and love and the dilemma of love in a world at war, the Padre did not talk. Sadly, I returned to my cabin. If I believed wholeheartedly in war, how simple and straightforward this life would be. If only the Padre could have helped me resolve the problem of how it is possible to fill the heart with grace, yet to spatter the wriggling brains of a fellow human onto the rock at one at the same time. We are often told that God is on our side in war and against the other side. I just can't believe he makes any such choice. God is not in war. God is the still small voice that speaks to the heart. In the Holocaust of war, it is so difficult to hear him. What of tomorrow? I suppose I will have to fly with the same sorrow and solitude as I bear now. I know the details of how we were to get up at 3.45am, breakfast at 4.15, have a final briefing at 4.45 in the wardroom, start our engines at 5.15 and take off immediately afterwards, and I make one last prayer. I ask for continual realisation that all men, particularly my enemies, are innocent if they are doing their best to lead good lives, and that I may never, whatever the circumstances, hate. That's it for today. We'll be heading back to the heat of Malta soon. If you're enjoying this audiobook, you might be interested to know that we have nine free audiobooks on our members' site. It's £6 a month to join, or $7.50 in the US, but for that you get a weekly live show, lots of discussions with like-minded people, and all those free audiobooks. You can join by going to patreon.com slash wehaveways. That's Patreon, spelt P-A. T-R-E-O-N dot com slash we have ways. More of One Man's Window coming soon.